The governments have been so strident in their deployment of propaganda that I call PSYWAR or PSYOPs or fifth generation warfare. This mantra, which is really a PSYOPs campaign, that's been deployed of saying these words, safe and effective, safe and effective repeatedly. COVID-19 vaccination is safe and effective. Safe and effective. I promise you, they are safe and effective. That these are safe and effective products. You called it NLP. You said that that is a way of brainwashing someone. We heard repeated over every single different media channel government, and that is a version of fifth generation psychological warfare. When you heard those terms, you never heard any qualifiers. You never heard what is the criteria for being safe? What are the criteria for being effective? We now know there were no data suggesting or demonstrating that these products were effective at preventing infection or spread of the virus. We were given propaganda. I know you were able to speak at Parliament. What was the purpose of that hearing? SARS-CoV-2 was not a highly pathogenic virus. The 3.4% case fatality rate was basically a fraud. This has resulted in a major unnecessary loss of life from the dosing with these products. Everything that we thought could go wrong is now going wrong. Those of us who have been whistleblowers, we're being treated increasingly as enemies of the state, and people ought to wake up. The history of centralized authoritarian command economy governments has been very poor. You know, eventually they get overthrown. This is London Real. I am Brian Rose. My guest today is Dr. Robert Malone, the internationally renowned physician, virologist, immunologist, and author. You are the original inventor of mRNA vaccination as a therapy and have more than 100 scientific publications with over 14,000 citations of your work. You are best known for your vocal stance and commentary during the COVID crisis, particularly concerning testing, early treatment, and vaccine safety. Since then, you've written the best-selling book, Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Future Coming, where you explain the fifth-generation psychological warfare used by the deep state to bring about a new world order. On Monday, you gave expert testimony in the UK Parliament in support of MP Andrew Bridgen's proposed referendums bill, which he describes as a fight for the sovereignty and the integrity of the British people. Dr. Malone, welcome back to London Real. Thanks, Brian. Great intro. Thanks a lot. You've been busy. I want to hear about what happened on Monday and what didn't happen on Monday, because I know you were able to speak at Parliament. I know you were able to get a certain number of MPs and members of the House of Lords there. But I also know it was uh, plagued with uh, a few um, setbacks. setbacks. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm sure neither one of us uh, are conspiracy theorists, but some of them uh, seem to be in the interest of not allowing you to get your message out there. Maybe you could zoom out a little bit and talk about why you were here and maybe be, bring people up to speed with what uh, Andrew's doing in the parliament. Uh, so, well, what Andrew's doing in the parliament is beyond, uh, you know, I, I can't wrap my head around that. He's busy in all fronts. He's got amazing energy. And uh, his, his um, ability to state uh, the case for whatever he's working on, I think is, is seriously um, excellent. He's, he's just a super speaker and uh, full of humor, uh, wit, and deep insight into the British system. What 
took place here was, as you'll recall, one of the last times, I think last time I was here, I was speaking at the Carlton Club in support of uh, Andrew to the conservative party, essentially. Andrew tells me that shortly thereafter, he was uh, no longer allowed to be a member of the club. Uh, and uh, I reminded him that correlation does not prove causation. Uh, but um, in this case, we had a, a, a number of us were contacted uh, by uh, a, I don't, I don't know if he wants to be mentioned or not, so I'm going to hold his name, uh, a uh, citizen of the UK uh, who lives in Cornwall, uh, who's uh, previously worked in uh, the entertainment industry, particularly as a announcer and as an actor, and uh, is politically active and uh, inquired whether or not we would be willing to come and participate in a protest and a and speak in Parliament on behalf of Andrew, uh, given that he has been so censored and you know the the stories about the walkouts, etc., with uh, the um, general population up in the balcony uh, in the House of Commons uh, yelling and screaming and making noise behind that plastic barrier that they've set up now or glass or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it really went worldwide. Uh, it it uh, caught the attention of, of people uh, in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, all over Europe. And so we were asked, myself and others, whether we would be willing to come and speak on his behalf at a hearing in Parliament. And uh, there, wasn't, there was a donor that stepped in that helped defray the travel expenses and provide some lodging. A very generous uh, person uh, that is very committed to our cause. But it, it was, uh, we were asked to come out on a shoestring on uh, short notice. And uh, Andrew had arranged for a room uh, that was quite a bit larger. Uh, and then that, was, that request was denied. And instead, a much smaller venue was authorized. I think about 50 people total. And uh, then Andrew and Oracle Films su submitted requests and I think other press outlets also, to bring cameras to the event. Uh, and that was denied by the sergeant-at-arms, which I understand is, is pretty much unheard of. I don't know the nuances of British politics. Uh, and uh, so Andrew uh, was quite adamant that we were going to get footage from this, even if they were going to try to block him. And so his own cameraman brought some gear. And that triggered the sergeant-at-arms to authorize security. And so the room, as you go in, uh, had security officers flanking the entrance, which I'm told is also highly unusual. Uh, uh, my understanding is about half to two-thirds of the people that had hoped to attend were not able to because of the size of the room. And all the cameras in the room, there were can cameras in all four quadrants, uh, and I understand that it's the norm that any testimony would be videotaped and archived. But in this case, the cameras were all turned off and, and no recording was allowed. Of course, there were a number of people in the audience that whipped out their iPhones and, and Android devices and captured video. 
so we have clips and some audio, not super high quality from the testimonies. And, and for instance, my own, uh, not that I'm, you know, they were all excellent presentations, uh, but mine went out as one of the first, and it's had 1.2 million plus views since Monday, uh, and then it got capped uh, for some reason, and, and no more views. Uh, so that's so that's the status, and um, uh, the cameraman uh, that works for Andrew is busy aggregating and compiling and merging all of these video segments that were captured off of people's cell phones. And that should probably go live in the next 24 hours. There's been some clips put out by individuals such as myself. Uh, and uh, the, the hearing itself really went exceptionally well. What was the purpose of that hearing? What did you want to accomplish? And what was actually said, if you had to summarize it? So the intent was to reach, frankly, to reach the persuadable middle in a situation in which Andrew is clearly being censored in every possible way, something you're very familiar with, uh, and uh, has been kicked out of his own party. Although I understand there's been some inquiries about uh, changing that, but Andrew is, has dug in that he is not going to back down in his positions in order to gain readmission into the uh, elite. Uh, um, I guess he was a whip before. Hmm. Uh, and um, so the intent was to speak to the persuadable middle, uh, speak to uh, both the lords and MPs, but particularly the MPs, to the extent that they're willing to listen or those that are willing to listen, and uh, provide uh, scientific and technical information to them so that uh, they might better understand that Andrew is not a, uh, a, um, a fringe conspiracy theorist or the various pejoratives that are thrown out by corporate media these days, but rather his positions and what he's been speaking about in, in uh, House of Commons represents a valid scientific position, I won't say consensus, that is supported by bona fide physician and scientist experts uh, grounded in data. So that was the uh, objective, was not to come in as bomb throwers or flamethrowers uh, accusing uh, individuals of crimes against humanity or those kinds of, that kind of language, but rather to uh, speak in, in moderate tones, but forcefully and clearly with uh, data and documents to back up the positions, uh, hoping that that might start to convince some fraction, particularly of commons, to recognize that Andrew is not a fringe character promoting fringe theories. And my sense is that goal was achieved. Uh, we had 12 uh, MPs and four members of the House of Lords attending, and they were very engaged, 
after all of the testimony, they asked questions. They were very active in asking questions. And one of the key messages that came through, we, we started with David Martin, again, reviewing the history of, of the coronavirus as a platform bioweapon for gain-of-function engineering, going back to uh, really the founding of the WHO and the associated legal positions such as the WHO having been indemnified by charter from the outset. Uh, he went all the way back to the time of the Rockefellers and their efforts to um, enable WHO and uh, this whole health, uh, global health agenda initiative and uh, built a case up to the present. And then uh, we had Ryan Cole talking about the uh, pathology that's being observed uh, and the risks, uh, you know, disease types, adverse events. We had Pierre Corey telling the story of ivermectin and the collusion within the pharmaceutical industry to suppress uh, repurposed drugs that were off patent in favor of licensed drugs and, and the strategies that were used uh, the strategies that were used in clinical research to delegitimize ivermectin in particular, because that's his focus. And I spoke about the more general aspects. I spoke uh, extemporaneously, not off of slides, unlike the others, uh, directly to the audience, which seemed to work pretty well in reaching people, uh, about um, basically the underlying logic that this was not a highly pathogenic virus, that the 3.4% case fatality rate was basically a fraud. Uh, it, was, it was not supported by the data. In fact, the data have indicated that the case fatality rate for this virus, SARS-CoV-2, has been, in the end, more like 0.02%, which is the figure that Jay Bhattacharya came up with in his original studies at Stanford University in the first quarter of 2020, and of course he was ridiculed for that, uh, just like Trump was ridiculed for saying that it was well under 1%, and uh, um, uh, how the 3.4% figure, which would mean that uh, between three and four out of every 100 people infected would have died, and that would have been a true tragedy, no, no doubt. Uh, but that was used to justify the uh, jamming of established regulatory processes and uh, um, informed consent by patients. So I spoke uh, kind of passionately about um, how, how we've uh, breached uh, fundamental principles of informed consent and agreed upon regulatory affairs principles uh, for uh, testing and demonstrating safety and effectiveness of vaccines. And then um, I also spoke about this controversy now that has come up regarding the New Zealand data that was uh, released. And as you probably know, or your audience probably knows, the person in New Zealand that released the data was then arrested for having released those data concerning uh, all-cause mortality and the correlation between taking the vaccine and adverse events. 
uh, in is now uh, at risk for uh, I think it's um, seven years of uh, prison uh, for his role in releasing these data, uh, and um, so so Steve Kirsch also spoke, and Steve has been very focused on this and the data analysis of those data, which has become quite controversial. And facing, you know, all of this blew up uh, in the two days before we had to testify. So uh, I, I was asked by many to basically synthesize this and come out with my own position. And rather than diving into the circular firing squad of people saying, oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you forgot this control, the data's missing this or the data's missing that, uh, I, I made the point um, both online and then in my testimony that what we really need is for governments all over the world to release the data. And once we have the data, then we can argue about the analysis of those data, but we no longer have to argue, hopefully, about uh, the integrity of the data, whether or not the data have been edited in some way, whether or not they've been selectively reported, so there's reporting bias, etc. And, and if, so I, I spoke strongly about the logic that they, there has been a worldwide failure to follow established regulatory norms and established norms in bioethics and informed consent. I spoke a little bit about the role of the propaganda in blocking the ability of patients to have informed consent, but I spoke most strongly about the need to just have governments release the data. Then Steve came on and uh, spoke at length uh, because we, what had happened was that we had two recorded presentations and uh, somehow uh, the audiovisual system wouldn't work so we couldn't play those pre-records and we couldn't have the audio working and we couldn't get any AV support uh, and the controls on the television that was being used as the broadcast monitor uh, were not there in the room so again, the appearance that there was some sort of, uh, at minimum, passive-aggressive behavior on the part of the sergeant-at-arms or uh, his, his um, functionaries. Uh, and so uh, the organizers were able to give Steve a little bit more time. Uh, and Steve spoke at length about the, uh, the wrongs of imprisoning the gentleman who had released the data to him. Uh, Steve has, the uh, government of New Zealand has managed to reach in and have all of the servers that Steve had placed the data on so that other people could look at it and make their own analysis. Those servers were all taken down. Those files were all deleted uh, at behest of, of the government of New Zealand. Uh, and um, Kevin McKernan, who's the gentleman that has been doing a lot of the genomic analysis to demonstrate the contamination of DNA fragments, had mirrored those data. And the government in New Zealand was able to get a warrant and have Kevin's servers cleaned out. So not just the data um, that he acquired from Steve, but all of his data uh, were cleaned out in response to the warrant from New Zealand. 
which is a, a very strange position now that's being taken, uh, you know, un, really unprecedented. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, but Steve got up and uh, really gave, I think, the best talk I've ever seen him give. And I've seen a number of them uh, going back uh, at least three years now. Uh, but it was very measured, uh, it was very balanced, and it uh, was very focused on the same message that I'd developed uh, the day before, uh, whether he came to that independently or he saw my tweet and, and then decided to uh, restructure his presentation. It went over very, very well, the emphasis on the need for governments to be open and transparent about the data. And then in the Q&A afterwards, uh, we had a number of MPs basically endorsing that position uh, and speaking in a very positive, engaged way. We had another MP who has a background in clinical research who uh, strongly supported uh, the presentation, a uh, series of presentations that had been made. Um, that uh, he, His comment, as I recall, was that everything that he had heard uh, sounded like standard good, good practice good clinical practice uh, that we were advocating for, which is really, if, if you were in my space, that's pretty much a ringing endorsement uh, that we are all staying within the norms and standards of our discipline. Uh, Why the UK? Why is that so important? I know you spoke about research that was done in Liverpool and Oxford, but you know why is this such an important nation to address when it comes to everything that happened during COVID? Well, uh, you have the Wellcome Trust, who has been intimately involved in uh, the, I think the gentlest word I could use is collusion, uh, with uh, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, and uh, the NIH. Back to O2, I think, for the way Dr. Martin talks about uh, I would say probably earlier than that, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, O2, for sure. Uh, so, long history of uh, collusion or cooperative ventures. Uh, the we have this documented history now of engagement, joint engagement between the U.S. Intelligence Committee and MI5, MI6. I'm not sure where you draw the line anymore between those two. Uh, and uh, then we've had the recent disclosures from Schellenberger that uh, document that a lot of this censorship activity that we I had originally attributed to the Trusted News Initiative really goes back a lot further, and it involves uh, very high-level cooperative interactions between our uh, joint militaries and uh, our intelligence communities in, in acting to suppress this information and to suppress the ability of the public in both uh, nation states to have access to adverse event information under the, under the thesis that that would cause vaccine hesitancy and the belief system that we were gonna have this uh, um, extremely lethal virus and a vaccine that would be safe and effective. This, this mantra, which is really a PSYOPs campaign, that's been deployed of, of saying these words, safe and effective, safe and effective, repeatedly. You called it NLP during your yeah, testimony in parliament. linguistic programming. You exactly. said that that is a way of brainwashing someone, safe and effective, safe and effective, that we heard repeated over every single different media channel government. 
and that is a version of fifth generation psychological warfare. Absolutely, and uh, notice that uh, for those of you that are able to hear this and are awake enough, when you heard those terms safe and effective, you never heard any qualifiers. You never heard what is the criteria for being safe, what are the criteria for being effective. You just heard the words repeated again and again and again. Uh, Just like you heard the words that uh, none of us are safe until all of us are safe, which was used to justify a lot of the mandate policies and, and the really psyops that were deployed that to the, uh, you know, under the thesis that if you didn't take the vaccine, then you were putting grandmother or whatever the surrogate is at risk. You're being selfish uh, by not uh, engaging in this, which we now know uh, at the outset, there were no data suggesting or demonstrating that these products were effective at preventing infection or spread of the virus. We were given uh, propaganda that we would be able to achieve herd immunity with these project with these products without any data. And now, with the passage of time, it's very clear that. We could never get to herd immunity, no matter how high, you know, how compliant the British or the American pop- populace was, or the Canadian populace. Uh, and we now know unequivocally that they do not prevent infection and replication. And as was testified uh, um, uh, at the hearing, uh, it's the data are indicating that the more of these products you take, the more likely you are to develop more severe disease. And increasingly, the data are showing you're more likely to die the more of these products you take, die from SARS-CoV-2. And that's that's a problem for the state. I I think, Brian, really, um, and these are strong words, the behaviors we're seeing from nation states such as New Zealand, Canada, the UK, US government, uh, and many others, Australian government, are, are indicative of those of us who have been whistleblowers or uh, conscientious objectors, or you could use a lot of euphemisms, you could call us far-right neo-Nazi fascists if you want, uh, uh, but whatever whatever we're being labeled as, um, we're being treated increasingly as enemies of the state. Uh, So uh, now Ryan Cole and many of the others that traveled recently uh, to speak in Eastern Europe uh, about the safety of and effectiveness of these products are now being subjected to heightened security in their travels. Uh, they've been designated essentially with the same designation that people are, that are on the terror watch list have been designated uh, because of speaking out about these things and just going over the scientific data. Uh, they're, they're, the behaviors are that we're being perceived as a threat to the state, uh, which in, in one sense is amazing. I mean, just you know, a bunch of docs and scientists talking about medicine and, and science, uh, but um, at another level, because 
the governments have been so strident in their uh, deployment of propaganda uh, in the modern propaganda tools that I call PSYWAR or PSYOPs or fifth generation warfare, they're really dug in. Uh, and uh, they, in, to disclose or confirm uh, the nature of the damage that's been done through mandates, enticement, uh, compulsion, coercion, in insisting that these products be uh, taken up by people. Uh, it appears that the data are uh, so compelling that this has resulted in a major unnecessary loss of life from the uh, dosing with these products. 17 million yeah. is what you've said. That's whereas, a big number. Yeah, whereas the prior, so this is Dennis Ranacourt's group. Okay. Uh, who, uh, from Canada, and they're absolutely being harassed by the government also. And they said 17 million are dead because of the vaccine. Right, that's their estimate. And this is a, a hardcore academic group. Uh, they're no longer in academia, but they are fully aligned with academic standards of uh, biolog biology scientists of various types and mathematicians and biostatisticians. So these are all PhD level people that are seasoned uh, over a long period of time in analysis of all cause mortality. Of course, you're familiar with Ed Dowd and his group in Portugal that have been collecting all-cause mortality data from a variety of sources, including insurance actuarial data. But Ed uh, would be the first to admit that he is not a academic data analyst. Dennis Renacourt and his group are. Uh, very experienced in specifically all-cause mortality analysis. And uh, he, he presented truly stunning data, I thought, at the uh, fourth international COVID summit that we just had in Bucharest. That's like two weeks ago. <laughs> it's all time compression right now. I've been traveling so much. Uh, and uh, in that, his group noted that the uh, Karolinska Nobel Selection Committee in uh, their announcement regarding the award to Kariko and Weissman of Nobel Prize for enabling the rapid development of these vaccines through their invention or discovery. Uh, um, also mentioned that uh, these products had saved 14 million lives. And they made a number of other statements, including that the reason in part that they were awarding this was to encourage people to take the vaccine. There's a number of statements made that uh, are, I think are not defensible, but I, I don't want to come across as sour grapes, so I kind of don't talk about them much. I talked about them under questioning from people in podcasts right off after the moment. But uh, So Ranacourt and his group noted this uh, 14 million lives saved number and tracked it down. It, it comes from a Lancet infectious disease paper uh, that was published about, as I think, six months ago or maybe as a year ago, this number. And they this is peer-reviewed, uh, published in a high-profile journal, 
uh, Lancet is one of the top journals in the world in our space, medicine. Uh, and uh, so they decided to see if they could recreate the data, that, the calculations that led to this number. And what they found was that actually there was some fundamental mathematical flaws, very embarrassing, that it had passed through peer review and been published in The Lancet. Uh, but their hardcore mathematicians, one of Renicourt's conclusions to his talk was that maybe we need to set up a, a super panel for peer review of mathematicians to fact check uh, the biostatisticians and the epidemiologists after this fiasco. So they, they demonstrated that the calculations were wrong, fundamental mathematical errors, and when you uh, perform them correctly, even using the data set that uh, had been used uh, for the Lancet, then you came up with no evidence of any lives saved, which is kind of aligns with the growing consensus. Uh, and then they took it a step further and said, well, we're experts in all-cause mortality analysis and have been doing this for years with uh, well-documented um, uh, data sets from all over the world, from countries all over the world. Uh, what do we find if we actually do the right analysis? And they found a number of unusual things that Dennis spoke about, uh, such as um, the uh, excess all-cause mortality that was observed during the COVID crisis under the various government policies like lockdowns, et cetera, um, had national boundaries. Uh, so there was uh, big discrete differences in changes in all-cause mortality, which they can track on an almost monthly basis in a very sensitive way. Uh, they can detect the uh, male mortality in the United States associated with the Vietnam War from the historic data, et cetera. They can, you know, they can detect excess all-cause mortality from uh, earthquakes and uh, tsunamis and the, the data with the right filters, you can pull all this stuff out. And so what they found was uh, major differences having to do with national boundaries and even uh, in the United States data, state boundaries. Uh, um, and uh, you know that included uh, really refuting the positions that uh, Gavin Newsom had taken about the state of California being superior to the state of Florida. Yeah. Um, so they did this analysis, and uh, what they came up with was uh, worldwide excess of 17 million plus uh, deaths uh, in the all-cause mortality figure that they could attribute. This is their assertion. Once they had filtered out all the variables that they were uh, taking account of, they came up with the 17 million excess deaths and uh, noted that that was the current snapshot and that the trend lines in all-cause mortality, excess all-cause mortality, continued to go up. So uh, they assert that we haven't peaked. Uh, it's still ongoing, and that may have to do with these more delayed effects. Uh, we are seeing, un unlike the propaganda that went out regarding the myocarditis, we are seeing significant mortality associated with the myocarditis. It's not mild and transient, that was another lie. Uh, they had no data to make those assertions. They were just trying to calm the public at the time, clearly, uh, in, in pushing out those things. And we have these new ones that are really causing a lot of physicians to be concerned, the ones that are 
alert to the data um, and willing to speak out. And that's the cancers and autoimmune disease problems. And those are continuing to build. And that's, that's why historically uh, the, the accepted international consensus in vaccine development is that you need to do these large trials and then allow a follow-up period of at least a year, preferably two to three years, to see whether or not you have these delayed consequences emerging before you make a decision to license a product, particularly for such large-scale deployment. Yeah, yeah. Everything that we thought could go wrong is now going wrong. It seems like it. In front of our face. Yeah. You've talked about future pandemics and this kind of new world order and the way that WHO has kind of positioned itself to kind of dominate nations. We've also seen a little pushback from some nations. Yes. What do people need to be aware of? Because if you walk around central London, COVID never happened, it's never gonna happen again. Everyone's acting as if, you know, it's not even on their mind. But what should be people be aware of? So to your point, uh, I'm hearing, I'm, what I'm hearing is very much akin, aligned with what you just said. That here in the UK, the issue of the uh, upcoming international health regulation modifications and the pandemic treaty with the World Health Organization is a non-issue here. It isn't being debated in Parliament. Uh, Andrew tells me that most parliamentarians have no idea about this. It's being treated as a treaty uh, but in the United States, uh, they're bypassing the um, processes that would be required normally for a treaty, that, be, that being two-thirds uh, positive vote in the Senate to affirm a treaty, by calling it an executive decision or something along those lines and kind of uh, getting it slid in under those terms. And I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in the nuances of the timeline, which is really important. But there's a threshold uh, right about now, or it might have already passed in December 1, uh, for countries to comment and make decisions about the international health regulations. So why should you care? And why should you care? Uh, the answer is that these modified international health regulations that were originally developed by the United States Health and Human Services, so basically the same people that brought you the virus, uh, have uh, um, uh, proposed a series of modifications aligned with the One Health Initiative, which uh, the underlying thesis is that uh, everything, uh, animal health, human health, climate, environment, all impact on human health. And so should all fall under World Health Organization, CEPI, and these uh, large organizations that often get much of their funding from the Bill Gates uh, um, pool of capital. Uh, Warren Buffett, I guess we call it the Buff, Buffett-Gates pool of capital these days. Uh, and um, uh, under the modified international health regulations and uh, the proposed new pandemic treaty, a couple of key things would happen. Uh, the WHO would double its budget. Nation states would be, that are members of the WHO would be obligated to capitalize that doubling of the budget uh, 
as a function of their current expenses in healthcare. Okay, something that, as I recall, Brexit had uh, some things to say about the National Health Service and its budget, and now unilaterally you would be obligated as a nation state to uh, further capitalize uh, the World Health Organization, presumably at the expense of your existing NHS budget. I infer, I don't know, you know, the U- U.S. and the U.K. are both in this situation where the the pot of money is pretty dry right now. I mean, we can't, we're increasingly finding it difficult in the states to sell treasury bonds, bills. So I'm told. Uh, so uh, there would be an obligation to double the funding of the WHO, uh, and there would be additional powers vested with the Director General of the WHO, the unelected, currently Mr. Tedros, who many assert is is basically uh, been put in place uh, by the CCP and Bill Gates and primarily address answers to them. He's, uh, uh, I understand his political philosophy is fundamentally communist, uh, very much aligned with the CCP, an African man. Uh, and he would be vested with the power to declare global health emergencies for any cause. And the WHO, under these new uh, amendments and modifications, would have the uh, authority to uh, have active surveillance, uh, cynics might say spies, uh, within member states to monitor for any potential public health crisis and uh, would have the authority to uh, declare uh, a public health crisis nationally or globally, much as he did with smallpox, for instance. I'm sorry, with monkeypox. Uh, you'll recall that whole fiasco, yeah. uh, um, where the vote, I think, was 10 against and six or eight, four, and Mr. Tedros declared that a tie and then unilaterally decided that that was a, uh, a global public health emergency, the outbreak of monkeypox which turned out basically to be a nothing burger. Uh, So he would have that power, uh, and he could declare uh, a public health emergency for any cause. And of, you know, relating to that, there have been over 200 scientific journals that have, in their editorial positions, taken the stand that climate change represents a global public health crisis. So uh, the speculation that there might be a declared public health crisis for, Um, climate change or human-induced climate change is not uh, just paranoid conspiracy talk. It's supported by the editorial positions of 200 uh, medical journals. So so uh, one would find one's nation in a position where the WHO would absolutely have Uh, the ability to infringe on national sovereignty in terms of policy uh, and uh, and, um, measures to be taken. You know, for instance, I hear, just to build on this thread, uh, maybe we have a public health crisis in the Ukraine because of the war or, uh, you know, choose your other hot spot in the world uh, um, along the Mediterranean or elsewhere. 
uh, and uh, we have refugees that represent a public health crisis, well, maybe we have to have those refugees uh, relocated to, say, Ireland, just to pick a, a nation state. Uh, that is particularly incensed about those policies being implemented currently, uh, that would be all the norm and would be the power to do this would be vested with a appointed, unelected uh, director general of the WHO and his bureaucracy. Uh, That is a, a significant threat to national sovereignty and I and others assert that this is basically you could call it a camel's nose strategy. You know, once the camel gets their nose into the tent, pretty soon the whole camel's in the tent. Or you could call it a Trojan horse strategy. But it is absolutely keeping in mind that the WHO is an arm of the UN. It's absolutely aligned with Agenda 2030 of the UN, which is now being accelerated. Various parties are trying to accelerate that. Uh, Agenda 2030, which uh, includes clauses like it's a fundamental human right, to be able to migrate across national borders to wherever you want to live. Uh, And many other, uh, basically, uh, from my point of view, Agenda 2030 is a socialist manifesto. Wow, wow. There was this recent flu coming out of China that seemed to get a lot of attention. Was this another monkeypox in disguise, potentially? People call it white lung. That seems to be the euphemism that is being bandied about. Uh, white lung refers to a, a clinical observation typically on anterior posterior chest films. So plain chest films where when you see uh, mucus or fluid accumulation uh, in the alveoli or the bronchi, they, uh, they don't, they absorb uh, electrons and so you end up with a you end up with a white area on the chest film uh, because of the interference of the fluids. Uh, so that's the origin of the term, and that's it's something else that I've written about on Substack. And I, I have uh, I asked Steve Bannon to have me on, and he graciously agreed uh, to talk about this. Uh, what I did was I traced back to. Uh, the source of this alarm, which was a uh, machine-translated broadcast from a uh, region in China, from their news, that there was an outbreak or an increase in upper respiratory infection in children. Uh, and uh, in in fall, that was that was first reported uh, early this month, as I recall. Uh, no, uh, early November. We're now in December, uh, and uh, then uh, went through remarkable amplification within corporate media. So a, a number of of I use the term fear porn pieces were put out on the basis of this machine translated uh, um, information. Uh, from a Chinese broadcast, and then the WHO sent in kind of under pressure, from my point of view, from this press, corporate media push, uh, sent a open letter to the CCP asking for further information about this outbreak. And the response from the CCP was basically to paraphrase that what 
what is happening is a fairly normal winter outbreak of uh, a combination of respiratory syncytial virus, an endemic virus, often infecting children and elderly, influenza, and SARS-CoV-2, all of which happen to have vaccines, by the way, and mycoplasma. Mycoplasma is a, you, currently people call it a bacteria. When I was in training, we were told it was not quite a bacteria because it doesn't have the same kind of cell wall that bacteria have. But now it's being called a bacteria, so we'll just say that. But it's the smallest bacteria known essentially as a uh, group of species. And uh, it's the clinical disease associated with mycoplasma is uh, generally uh, called walking pneumonia. Uh, and what that refers to is it's a indolent, uh, slowly progressive pneumonia because that's the nature of this pathogen. Uh, it's, it's a intracellular parasite. Um, it's not tuberculosis, but has some characteristics like tuberculosis uh, in that sense. And uh, this kind of indolent, slow-growing, uh, it doesn't form the uh, classic nodules of tuberculosis that are so hard to treat, or the necrosis of TB. So I don't want to get the audience thinking this is a, this is a TB thing. Uh, it's mycoplasma. And uh, the problem with, with mycoplasmal pneumonia is it kind of creeps up on you. So you feel, you may have a fever, you feel drained, uh, low energy, uh, you know, low exercise tolerance. It gradually gets worse, and then you know, think you're thinking to yourself, "Well, maybe I just partied too much last Friday or whatever." Uh, and often it hits you when you are stressed about something or working too hard, like you do, <laughs> uh, and um, you gradually get worse and worse. And finally, you're like, "Ah, I think I got to go to the doc." And they take a, ch a chest film and they say, oh, you got walking pneumonia, you got this kind of white lung pattern. And uh, what do they do? They treat you with antibiotics. Now, uh, so generally, mycoplasma is readily treated with existing drugs. But apparently this Chinese uh, isolate that's circulating is rumored to have some increased drug resistance. So the docs have to reach a little deeper into their bag of tricks in terms of uh, antibiotic treatments, but it's still highly treatable. So according to the Chinese, that's, that's what's going on here is a classic winter surge of uh, upper respiratory disease in children. Now there was a, a deep dive uh, done, and I'm sorry I don't remember the primary source, but then Time reprinted it, uh, that I think is, and I cited in my substack, has been the best article that I've seen on this. Apparently what's going on is that in China, as you might well expect, parents are quite sensitive about respiratory disease in their children, remembering that in China there's been this long policy about small family size, so children are very valued by their parents. Uh, they invest a lot in them. They're afraid of them having an upper respiratory infection. Apparently, uh, so I understand, there aren't the kind of bound barriers that exist here or in the U.S. where you're directed to your local hospital. 
and they the kind of the growing middle class uh, in China has the opportunity to take their children to the top uh, um, tertiary care reference hospitals in the big cities, which is what they've been doing. So they're bypassing their local hospitals because their child has an upper respiratory infection and they're going to these large hospitals and the large hospitals are being overwhelmed because they haven't really had this kind of a situation before. And that's what's really driving this apparent surge and filling of hospitals. It's an artifact of uh, some cultural parameters and healthcare distribution parameters in China right now. But then this has been picked up by the press uh, and I, you know, my, my alarm bells for fear porn really got rang when I saw, I think it was a Daily Mail article authored by Rahm Emanuel, uh, Obama's uh, former chief of staff uh, and noted uh, infectious disease expert, uh, that was sarcasm, hmm. uh, that uh, this is a major public health threat and uh, bashing China, and that's, this has become another opportunity to bash China, not that China, China doesn't deserve bashing about their infectious disease policy, but it's, it's a convenient, um, I guess the kindest way to put it is stalking horse. Uh, um, uh, and uh, that seems to be what's happening. So my sense is until proven otherwise, and of course there was a swirl of rumors that this was another released Chinese engineered virus that was going to kill us all uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the internet was just alight with this from both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and um, uh, to my assessment, I haven't seen any evidence, and the Chinese are vociferously objecting to all of this uh, that's, that's um, coming out about them and, and this pathogen. They're basically saying this is a nothing burger. And from what I see, it's a nothing burger. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Um, but it was good to get your analysis on that. You know, you talk about, in one sense, some of these institutions being hijacked by the left and having all these underlying socialist slash Marxist policies that we need to be concerned about. On the same note, we're seeing governments around the world elect these, I guess, so-called far-right representatives. Um, Giorgio Maloney. Yeah. The, the second coming of Benito Mussolini. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's, what's happening in Holland and then Argentina with Javier Millet. Yeah. What do you make of these data points and what do you make of some of these individuals? Um, so I don't know enough about Gert Wilders um, to comment. I haven't done a dive and an essay on him. I yeah. did do on Javier. Uh, okay. And uh, um, and obviously I, I, I wrote about Giorgio Maloney at the time and spoke to Steve Bannon, who I understand from time to time actually advises her about uh, his take. And since I now have a, a kind of a cohort of uh, buddies and supporters in Italy, I rang those folks up and asked them. And, and that was a, you know, talking about, so starting with Giorgio Maloney, uh, it was fascinating to watch the American press uh, the usual outlets, uh, labeling her as a far-right uh, fascist uh, and uh, um, really taking a uh, the sky is falling kind of position about her potential election and clearly attempting to uh, um, 
influence the election in Italy. Uh, that didn't work out so good. Uh, and um, my buddies in Italy were, were basically telling me at the same time, and I, and I actually posted one of her speeches where she has, uh, there's some speeches where she speaks about unwed mothers and the social system and unfairness and things that are uh, really quite remarkable. Uh, but what I heard from my colleagues was Italy is so constrained by their debt to Brussels and their um, ties, the Italian government, their ties to the United States government and uh, various United States intelligence agencies, that they have almost no operational latitude to govern. Uh, and then other cynics within my world uh, teach to me that functionally the mafia and the Italian government have become one and the same anyhow. And maybe that's a good thing. Uh, because at least there's somebody there that you can go to and get a response from has been the position, which I find fascinating. Uh, and um, that, that Maloney was likely uh, to govern from center-right uh, because she had no f- options. Uh, and all she really could do was talk about social issues because their financial constraints are so severe that there's no major programmatic efforts that they have the capability of responding to. And in fact, that's pretty much what's been happening. I think everyone, there's, there's widespread uh, gnashing of teeth and disappointment that Giorgio Maloney has not turned out to be the far-right firebrand that some had hoped that she would be. Uh, um, she's pretty much a, a right-of-center uh, Euro politician uh, I think is what I see from my side of the pond. What about Javier and Argentina? So Argentina is fascinating. Mm. And um, uh, once again, he was portrayed with all kinds of pejoratives. He was, he was portrayed as a uh, television personality, uh, as a populist, uh, long-haired, uh, um, irresponsible uh, um, you know, uh, radical, uh, who, by the way, self-identified as an anarcho-capitalist, uh, which is a term I hadn't been familiar with. It turns out that there's a whole world of ANCAPs, just like uh, there are, there's a whole world of TRADCATHs, traditional Catholics, which are being targeted, by the way, uh, for the sin, I guess, of wanting a Latin Mass. Uh, by the Pope and by the FBI, uh, but um, uh, the ANCAPs or anarcho-capitalists uh, are basically the Austrian school of economics uh, devotees uh, that believe in, um, I'm, I'm learning more nuance in the language around this, there's also the microcaps that believe in a minimal government you might fall into that, I suspect. And there are the ANCAPs that are anarcho-capitalists that believe that uh, um, government functionally is a parasite uh, that coerces extraction of uh, wealth uh, from those that actually produce it. Uh, and uh, there's a... Uh, Murray Rothburn, I think is his name, has done a... 
uh, spent much of his life, he passed away, I think, five or six years ago, uh, um, deep dive into the logic, which uh, is very influenced by Ayn Rand, uh, the uh, um, Russian expatriate uh, that wrote in the United States a number of influential books, uh, notably uh, um, Atlas Shrugged, uh, which gives rise, you know, the, one of the key characters there, John Galt, is is actually uh, uh, in the in the um, fiction goes and creates a a world in Colorado called Galt's Gulch, in which uh, much of the productive inventors of society retreat to. Uh, and live in a world in which there's essentially no governmental oversight and they all negotiate among each other, which is uh, basically the anarcho-capitalist version of the world uh, or an optimal world. Uh, Rothburn acknowledges that there are problems at the edges with this logic. Uh, but in, in this book, The Anatomy of the State, that I've been citing, uh, there's a I found a profoundly troubling and insightful analysis on the nature of the modern state and, and its uh, various arms and aspects that seem to be very aligned with what's going on. And this is the, the um, framework that this gentleman with a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD in economics in the Austrian school, who was a academic professor for well over a decade, uh, um, and then I guess like some of us has become increasingly radicalized under the his his observation of the absolute destruction of what had up until basically World War II been one of the top ten economies in the world with Buenos Aires having been uh, widely seen as the Paris of, of the Southern Hemisphere, uh, um, that has just been absolutely destroyed since the rise of Perón and the subsequent government turmoil, uh, not the least of which would be the Falkland Islands War, something that is very near and dear to the British people. But uh, Millier is not a uh, television personality, long hair, um, radical. He's a he's an economist. He is an academic economist that has uh, basically got to that famous position of um, I'm not going to take it anymore, and gotten engaged in in politics, and uh, a tipping point appears to have been in the election, or certainly an inf an influential inflection was an interview with Tucker Carlson. One of the things that Millier has astutely done is engage effectively with social media, uh, which is kind of Trumpist uh, if, or populist, or we could say um, wise and astute. Uh, many are asserting that this uh, next election cycle in the United States will be the podcast election. Uh, and uh, Tucker went down there, uh, bang up interview, uh, and uh, Millier is apparently quite popular among uh, the young, which have become a 
kind of a disaffected, disassociated part of society in much of the West, um, disengaged from politics. Uh, but he lit him up and uh, won the election and uh, came out with some really strong statements. The statements the press were using, uh, um, something along the lines of the socialists should be quaking in their shoes or something like that. Uh, folks that uh, have commented on my Twitter thread uh, in response to what I had posted about Millier, uh, tell me that uh, that's, that's uh, a greatly toned down version of what he said. Uh, um, it, was, it was really strong, uh, you know, uh, that uh, they should be fearing, I think, essentially for their lives. One of the things I found fascinating in doing this, in doing the um, background research so that I could put out my own uh, version of journalism on our Substack, was that uh, all in the Western press, all I got were these stereotypes about him. No actual information about his background, nothing about anarcho-capitalism. Uh, it was actually a uh, publication from India where I was able to find the full CV, all the details, his academic history, etc. Real old school journalism, just objectively reporting who was this person, as opposed to all the, you know, promoted stereotypes. So he's and then he's come out. The you know criticism is that he's reciting standard bromides uh, from uh, uh, the uh, Austrian school uh, as an economist about. Uh, statements such as uh, those that, that value uh, equality or, or what do you say, um, fairness uh, over, um, what do you say, uh, those who, who, who prioritized fairness over freedom will be neither fair nor free. Yeah. Yeah, I think was the position. He says some very impressive stuff, that's for sure. Um, he also has been going after wokeism in a massive way. Yep. And uh, as have you, I mean, you said recently wokeism is another form of cultural censorship. What do you see happening now in the States when it comes to this quote-unquote wokeism? I mean, I just saw some disturbing testimony in yep. Congress from the Harvard, Harvard, uh, Penn, and my alma mater, MIT, as they were asked about whether their students are allowed to call for the genocide of the Jewish people on their campus, and not a single one of them could give the answer of no. Um, now, maybe that's like No, they, it was worse than that. Yeah. They gave a, a uh, basically a uh, cultural relativism uh, position. Right. Uh, that that if, if basically what they said was, so long as they're not actually shooting Jews or killing them or, or committing physical acts of violence that uh, they didn't feel as university presidents that they should be censored for this. And yet uh, there's you know, abundant examples of censored speech on university campuses if you transgress about things like uh, transsexuals uh, or, or other, uh, you know, the use of bathrooms, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, so it, it's clearly uh, not consistent. Uh, Were you surprised by that testimony? Of course. Where they just could not even Shocked. give an answer? Shocked. Yeah, I know. Um, but the fact that they felt that they could actually do that is almost as shocking. Yeah. Um, uh, 
uh, and and not be concerned about repercussions. Yeah. Uh, um, they felt so confident and comfortable in that position. Uh, censorship has, you know, since, if you reel back <clears throat> that Obama speech at Stanford in which he, it's about three years ago now, in which he came out with a justification that in order to preserve democracy, we we're going to have to have censorship, was uh, profound, and it has swept the West. Uh, we, we're now in a position where, well, for instance, uh, the latest news, the government of Ireland has proposed a bill uh, that essentially uh, will um, enable uh, finding and retaliation against corporations that allow uh, speech which uh, the Irish government uh, believes should have been censored. Uh, and uh, the thesis is that this is really an attempt uh, of, of the globalist position which largely controls the government as I understand it right now uh, to uh, um, kind of backdoor worldwide censorship. Is the election that we saw in some of these other countries, is that a precursor to what's going to happen in America? Or is it not that simple? Or is there a growing distaste with this wokeism? Like we saw the pushback against the Bud Lights and the Disneys and Elon Musk recently on the New York oh, yeah. stage saying, go fuck yourself yeah. to the Thank people. Thank you for being the one saying yeah, that. Yeah, I shouldn't have, but I did it. <laughs> to the people, um, and of course he has a history with the Anti-Defamation League that pulls some kind of funny, dirty tricks. As do people. I. Right. As okay. you, okay. They pulled the same tricks on me uh, and Steve Kirsch and others <coughs> in putting out an article. You know, this is the typical strategy. Uh, this is one of these weaponizing tactics where they are trying to shut down, in this case, not Twitter, but Substack. And what they did was they uh, found three authors that have very prominent Substack subscriptions and three authors that are full-on flagrant neo-Nazis, Substack being owned and run by uh, progressive San Francisco residents, uh, just to put a point on it. But they are absolutely uh, free speech freaks and uh, um, allow a lot of things on their platform that if I was the CEO, I would probably nix those. But that's their position. Uh, and um, so what the ADL did was find three uh, low subscriber, full-on neo-Nazis and three of us uh, with, that they asserted were uh, anti-vaxxers. You know, I'm the vaccine-developing anti-vaxxer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then put out an article saying uh, Substack is empowering and and enabling revenue for neo-Nazis and anti-vaxxers. And then uh, the Washington Post then repeated that in their own version, citing the ADL, uh, but left out a lot of the nuance and just uh, you know label us all as anti-vaxxer neo-Nazis. Uh, and you know, this is part of a concerted campaign that's been going on to try to make a, um, an equivalence between anti-vaxxer and anti-Semites, uh, which suddenly has collapsed for some reason uh, with this wave of uh, 
protests that swept the campuses. It's, it's no longer apparently safe uh, to try to label somebody as an anti-Semite. Uh, but so they, they, they pulled the same trick on me. They pulled it on Elon in the case of trying to shut down Twitter. Bobby Kennedy, too, but the Democratic Party pulled that on him. And Andrew Bridgen. Okay. Remember, that was the original uh, justification for getting him kicked out of the conservative party, was he was citing a Jewish, uh, um, uh, as I recall, a physician or scientist who said that the deaths associated with the um, deployment of the vaccines would exist those of the exceed those of the Holocaust. And so this was branded as anti-Semitic. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Um, and that was the justification initially. They kind of walked that back a little bit. Um, so is this going to be predictive of the next election? Uh, too soon to tell. A lot of turbulence going on right now uh, and in this uh, amazing narrative uh, that's come up that uh, is basically uh, existential alarmism that uh, if Donald Trump is elected, it will be the end of uh, the American government as we know it. Uh, Coming from the left in op-eds in the New York Times and others uh, that uh, are all alarmed, finally, they're recognizing the potential risk of Schedule F. Uh, and recognizing that the Heritage Foundation has compiled a list of over 2,000 potential employees, uh, presidential appointees, so that if Donald Trump gets in or whoever the conservative candidate that gets in, hopefully, uh, from the Republican Party, uh, would uh, have a depth at the bench, would, unlike what Trump had with his first term, so that uh, um, they wouldn't have to resort to appointing basically deep staters that then torpedoed them. Uh, that's the logic. And uh, Schedule F, for the audience here, uh, you may be familiar with it, but mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of inside baseball in American politics. The problem is uh, that, in part, uh, the American government is run by the Senior Executive Service, which is a few thousand individuals. They have their own flag, uh, their own emblem, uh, which is a keystone, and they are virtually unable to be fired. And Mr. Trump kept running into these people during his first term. And, uh, you know, famously, you're fired was his uh, brand. Uh, at will employees is the world that he grew up in. And uh, the senior executive service is not an at will employment. They are basically permanent members. And the best, when I, when I want to help somebody to understand what this means, I often cite yes, minister. Uh, or yes, Prime Minister, the British uh, um, broadcast that, that kind of described this relationship between the established bureaucracy and the elected officials. And the SES uh, notoriously considers elected public servants to be temporary employees of the government, and they're the permanent ones. So in his last term, Mr. Trump came up with this strategy that he would reassign them to a new employment category called Schedule F. And then from there, he would be able to uh, make them at-will employees and uh, hire and fire at will. And uh, that had you know, huge court challenges, etc. made it through just before the election. And then literally the first thing that Mr. Biden did upon election and being sworn in was to cancel uh, the presidential order for uh, enactment of Schedule F. 
And uh, that, it seems like the uh, corporate media has woken up to the, they're increasingly predicting that Trump will win and that uh, he will implement Schedule F and that has led to these, uh, you know, apocryphal statements that he's going to destroy the government uh, by eliminating this uh, pure permanent bureaucrat class and substituting presidential appointees. Uh, and um, that's led to increasingly strident rhetoric uh, in which uh, most recently he's, uh, I think the New York Times is coming out with a statement to the effect that uh, editorially, that Trump will be a dictator. Uh, so they've, they've really ratcheted up the rhetoric trying to promote the logic that Mr. Trump it will be a, an authoritarian. And, and I've seen, there was a recent article in, in one of your publications that I subscribe to. It's called Unheard, H-E-R-D, which I always enjoy reading. Um, I think particularly Mary Harrington, just to give a shout out, I think is, is a brilliant analyst. Uh, but uh, there was an article, I think today, as I recall, that came out that examined whether Trump uh, actually could be or was at risk uh, for becoming a dictator or a totalitarian leader. And makes the case that actually he's never shown any of the characteristics that are typically associated with totalitarian leaders, not the least of which is he isn't very young, etc., uh, etc. Et um, it's just not how he's wired, but that's how he's being portrayed in, in this kind of it, again, it's more fear porn. Just like with white lung disease, you should be very afraid uh, if Mr. Trump is elected. And remember that that was an effective strategy for Biden in the midterms. Biden weaponized the term MAGA, Make America Great Again, with that famous Philadelphia speech that was so reminiscent of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Hitler productions with the red lights and the, and the spooky lighting uh, and the podium and um, you know speaking with, with the armed guards at his side and those kinds of things in which he spoke about the Make America Great movement as a major threat to American democracy. And I think that was a pivotal moment in that election which really fired up his base. What I wrote at the time was, at what cost um, to label essentially 50% of the American population as terrorists, as domestic terrorists, because that's what he did. Uh, and that seems, it seems like they're replaying that script. And I've, I've seen some people posting to the effect that um, functionally what they're doing, not directly, but indirectly, they're advocating assassination. They're act advocating uh, in, in promoting the narrative that Trump is uh, a Hitler-like figure, much like you know, uh, equating uh, Giorgio Maloney with uh, Mussolini. Promoting the logic that Trump is a Hitler-like figure, their case can be made they're advocating for some lone wolf uh, to take a uh, an action. Wow. Um, and uh, this is as as my wife and I, Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, uh, 
think about these things and talk about them over morning coffee. And people ask us, well, what about the Republican field and are you gonna vote for Trump and, and who are you gonna endorse? And those, not that my endorsement would matter um, to anybody, but uh, um, our concern is that Trump will be taken out somehow. One, one scenario is uh, they manage to get him into prison and then something happens, as this often seems to be the case in American judicial system. Uh, and that, that somehow he physically gets taken out and at a point in which the Republican field has been winnowed down to the point where there's no uh, credible alternative. Uh, and likewise, on the other side, of course, the speculation is that Mr. Biden is so compromised that they're going to run him through the primaries and then swap him out for Gavin Newsom or fill-in-the-blank candidate. Uh, and so, how's, how's Bobby looking? His chances. Um, uh, so depends on who you talk to. Uh, Bobby's supporters are uh, very encouraged by latest poll numbers that seem to be reaching into, in some cases, into the twenty and thirty percent bracket. Uh, um, the hardcore politicos that I talk to, which tend to be from the right, uh, in places like the Heritage Foundation and such so biased, I'm acknowledging their bias, uh, seem to suss this out that uh, it, it's going to be extremely difficult for Bobby to capture any of the electoral college votes, even at 20 or 30 percent. Um, to which my response and Jill's response is that, because we did it, this is another one we did at Substack and did a deep dive onto what, what is the current constitutional situation. If Bobby was, you know, the, I, as far as I'm concerned, the probability that uh, he, he takes 270 electoral votes is essentially zero. Uh, so winning on the first ballot, no, not gonna happen on the first round. Uh, the question is, could he capture enough electoral college votes to uh, deny either a major party candidate 270. Because if you don't get to 270, you don't win. If you don't get to 270, it throws it to the House, you know, your House of Commons uh, equivalent, at which point it turns out that um, each state would have one vote. Not entirely clear would that one vote be determined by the new incoming administration and, and uh, governor from that state, or the House members from that state, or the retiring ones. Uh, that's, I'm not clear on that, but it would be a one vote per state. Uh, and in general, uh, there are far more Republican-leaning states than, I'm sorry, yeah, Republican-leaning states and Democrat-leaning states. The Democratic uh, electoral position is largely driven by uh, their dominance of uh, major urban regions and the bicoastal, uh, and uh, so they have a relatively small number of states uh, with uh, um, 
more representatives from those states because of the population distribution. But if you go to this one state, one vote thing, it becomes more like the Senate, only even more so, uh, which is not representative of populations, but representative of state legislatures. And under that scenario, it would seem likely to go uh, to the Republican Party. And so that uh, I think that the, the most impact in my assessment that Mr. Kennedy could have in terms of the electors is to deny either party the majority and force it into the House. Now, in terms of uh, is, he, is he having an impact on the national dialogue, which I can assure you from my interactions with him back in the day when he was making these decisions, and I was being asked, I'm not an advisor to Bobby Kennedy, I'm not part of his campaign, etc. People assert otherwise that's all false. Uh, but at one point in time, he was asking my opinion about things and sharing with me some polling numbers and uh, asking me if I thought he should run and others of his supporters were asking me these questions. And my response was, I don't think ethically he has a choice other than to run because the issues that he's speaking to are so important and he's being so heavily censored and this would allow him to speak to those issues. He's you know, one of the few candidates uh, you know, Mr. Trump uh, is still a strong supporter of the vaccine products in Operation Warp Speed. Uh, Mr. DeSantis obviously is not, but has been uh, largely neutralized, unfortunately, I think. Uh, Nikki Lurie is, is uh, you know, rising somewhat, but, uh, is, you know, many assert that she's basically a neocon. Uh, and she's not making this an issue. Uh, and Bobby is a fraction of people are listening. But he made this, this tactical error, uh, and I think it came from the heart. I think that that's almost one of his weaknesses, uh, is, is he's an empathetic uh, person who um, uh, has a, a strong... Um, a strong support for people that have been loyal to him. I mean, I, I think he is a, a, just a really positive uh, human being, personally. Uh, I think that if he was to hit DC in executive position, he would just get chewed to pieces. Uh, but um, he made this mistake of running as a Democrat, uh, as a Kennedy Democrat, he tried to brand this. Uh, and and I was there for his kickoff speech in Boston in which he made the case with Dennis Kucinich, his initial campaign manager, that uh, the Democratic Party should return to its roots circa uh, basically the 60s. So uh, pre-Ronald Reagan, pre-Jimmy Carter, Democratic Party, uh, you know, certainly pre-Clinton Democratic Party, uh, and um, that included endorsement for, uh, uh, gently put, the social safety net uh, um, and those kinds of policies. Uh, environmentalism in a positive way, there's a lot of positive about the messages there, but still endorsing the old 60s logic of that we would now call the nanny state. Uh, and then um, apparently thinking that uh, 
wooing uh, minorities and typical, you know, traditional Democratic constituencies in this era would get him traction within the Democratic Party. And of course, they were gonna, not going to have any of that. Uh, and then eventually he came around. He missed an opportunity to hook up with the Libertarians who were on the ballot in all 50 states. I guess he decided not to go there for whatever reason. I haven't spoken to him you know, since those days up until the uh, Boston speech and then kind of distanced myself. Uh, um, but uh, that was a, a major tactical blunder and it cost him a lot of time and momentum at a time when many conservatives were actively discussing supporting him. Uh, and that I haven't heard any of that chatter in a long time now. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out next year. Um, Robert, I always appreciate your insights. When can we expect the, uh, the next book to come out? So we're, we're in later stage editing. Uh, the nominal title is uh, Psy War, Sovereignty, and Rogue Government. Uh, and uh, it, once again, it's turned into a massive tome that we're going to have to cut down. Um, and I... I was just with the translator for the Norwegian version last night, and he was complaining to me about how long it was and how hard it was to translate the last one. Uh, so I'm being encouraged to cut it down. Uh, and I think we're probably in the, I, I think a realistic timeline is something like five months, given where it's at right now, and now that I'm a more experienced author, and Jill is. And this will be a joint publication with both of us as authors. Uh, but it's it's a deep dive. And one of the problems in writing a book about Cywar and uh, what's going on is uh, it's hard to get ahead of the data. Uh, the the uh, uh, Racket News, uh, Schellenberger, Taibbi, uh, disclosures, etc., just roll. And um, the other day when Schellenberger was testifying in the uh, in the U.S. Congress. I swear he was using language that I've been using in my lectures. In a way, it was it was uh, um, affirming, but also made me realize that there, if we don't get cracking on this thing, it's going to be obsolete before we get it out the door. Uh, things are moving so fast, and it's it's being confirmed at such a level. When I when I started talking about Psy War, and I think the first major lecture was in uh, Stockholm. Uh, it seems like forever ago, nine months or so, uh, beginning of the year. Uh, that was really edgy uh, to talk about Psy War and the role of uh, the U.S. military in the propaganda and fifth generation warfare. And, and I, you know, I continue to just shock audiences. Again, yesterday when I was speaking in Norway, and I spoke about this in a in a modest way. You know, the the audience is just stunned. Uh, when they come to terms with uh, the fact that governments are deploying this technology on their citizens. But in my tours, I've had in the States, I've had on multiple occasions, retired colonel level people that were in the uh, various uh, Psy War brigades, uh, like at Fort Bragg, come up to me and tell me, Robert, you're right on the money, you're over the target. And my, my question to them is always, am I getting it right? Am I, you know, where did I get it wrong? Because I've been out on the edge on this topic. Uh, and, and they keep telling me, no, you're, you're, this is exactly what's happening and we're mad as hell. 
because this technology and, and space that we contributed our, our military careers to uh, for combating the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, etc., is now being deployed on the citizens. Uh, and um, uh, they're, they're aggravated about it. I wish the world was um, more aware of, but these things take time. Yeah. Uh, but um, as I think I might have said last time I was with you, I had a GB News interview where we had the typical counterpoint person speaking uh, in asserting that it was the right of the government to govern however it wished after an election was uh, had. By the way, I hear um, that you have another one coming up pretty soon. Uh, Mr. Sunak uh, apparently uh, doesn't wish to wear the mantle for too much longer, I guess. Mm. Uh, but. Um, so the assertion was that once a government is elected by the people in the UK, the government has the right to do whatever it wants to do because it's acting uh, based on the legitimate authorization of the people. Uh, and uh, my reaction was once this technology at the stage of development that exists right now with the capabilities of internet and other media sources, once a government becomes willing to deploy this technology on its own citizens and the concept of sovereignty is completely obsolete because the technology is so developed that uh, it can cut straight through, functionally hypnotize people to believe, feel, think, uh, whatever the government wishes them to. And so then when that happens, the, all of this chitter chatter about election integrity and electronic voting machines and whether we should have paper ballots and and voter ID and all that kind of stuff becomes completely irrelevant, uh, and then we've lost it. Uh, we are, we are in a modern techno-fascist society, and uh, people ought to ought to wake up to what that means, or uh, they are they're going to be stuck with it for the foreseeable future. The counterpoint being that uh, the history of centralized authoritarian command economy uh, governments has been very poor. But, uh, you know, eventually they get overthrown. But there's so much um, hardship, uh, you know, in the interim while they're, while they're grinding people and economies into the ground. Uh, you know, if, if uh, folks don't stand up and say no. And I don't know, um, you know, I, I wrote a tweet today, I think it's time that we should uh, talk about, it got good response, that we should talk about um, uh, boycotting tourism and travel into WEF client states, just to kind of get provocative and see what people would say. Uh, you know, a lot of the cynics came back, well, which ones would those be other than Russia? Uh, the, the idea that um, the World Economic Forum has essentially captured uh, a large number of Western governments is now increasingly accepted. And a case can be made that both of your parties, liberals and conservatives, are basically captive to the West. Certainly Canada is. Uh, Australia and New Zealand have largely been, although New Zealand seems to be bucking it a little bit right now. And uh, this is, I think, what's in play with the American government. Uh, are, are we going to tip over that edge and, and be like Trudeau's Canada? Uh, and 
uh, in your case, uh, just like Ireland and just like we were talking about Italy, my understanding is, and, and in the United States, the indebtedness is so deep and profound that uh, uh, no matter who you have as PM, their, their operational latitude is, is yeah. Um, negligible. Yeah, that's the scary part. Um, I just want to thank you for bringing these points you know, to the fore because you speak a lot about what happened during the COVID crisis, but the fifth generation warfare that marries it all together is, is crucial. And you're the only guy that's talking about that. So, Well, I'm, no longer. Yeah. I, well, I, was, okay. I was hanging out on the edge. Well, good. Thank you for that. <laughs> More people need to talk about it. And so let's definitely have you back when the book drops. I'm really looking forward to that. And um, just thanks for your tireless efforts. I know you're traveling the world, speaking the word, trying to put these ideas out there. You're a huge favorite for my audience. And so, again, just thank you. Thank well, you for putting Brian, the thank you there. for having me on. It's my pleasure. A, it's an honor. Uh, and, and I feel like uh, every time I come to London, I have, I have to touch base with you uh, um, just to see how you're doing, if nothing else. And I have a, just let me give a shout out. I have a new friend in, uh, here in the UK, uh, Epic Times. And I did an interview with UK thought leaders. I don't know how many of those have been done so far uh, on Monday morning. Uh, and I look forward to working with them. And I'm going to be having a, uh, you know, it's not officially announced yet, but I'll break it here to the UK audience. Um, I'm going to be doing a, uh, it's either a weekly or a biweekly with Yanya Kellick in the United States, okay. uh, the two of us together. Um, uh, under the Epic Times banner as a broadcast, so I'm 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 not up to your standards yet, uh, but I'm gradually uh, getting there and look forward to it. And the the thesis is with that one that we're going to be speaking more about uh, public affairs and general topics and hot topics of the day. So right, look forward to that. All right, until next time. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate you. Thanks, Brian. 